So Psalm 107 is actually a very wonderful contrast to Psalm 106, which for the past three teachings we have been doing, it started, I believe, on a Thursday, and then it moved to two Sundays. And so what we're going to be doing right now is seeing a difference with regard to the theme of this. And the theme of this has been noted, and you can probably sense it as God to the rescue. And one of the things that has been interesting is a parallel to where if some of you have been catching the Gospel of John teaching, we've seen Jesus to the rescue. In fact, the whole book of John is about the rescuing of the Lord for those who are doomed without him. And we've seen practical demonstrations of that, which has great meaning to us as members of his body and also as the church. And so the parallel is kind of uh, interesting that this, this actually has a title considering itself as the rescuing work or God to the rescue. And I like that title in particular because it just sounds like something that's, that's going to cause my heart to beat and to cause you know, my eyes to focus. So this also opens up with what we would cause a, in other words, as an evaluation, thanksgiving. So remember that when we closed on Psalm 106, which was the psalm of descent, lamentation, regret, remorse, things that were what we would call the carnal side of humanity, uh, base conduct and the repercussions of it and yet God being faithful through it it concluded with blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting and let all the people say amen and the reason that that's important is because every one of us can cite either personally or by those whom we know or have a hearing have had dissent psalms written in their lives and it seems to be at times where you just don't know how you're going to ascend again and one of the things that we've learned is that it's a discipline to ascend again it takes every bit of an effort to make the ascent to god as it actually did to make a descent from God. It takes an effort to make a descent from God. It takes an effort to make an ascent to God. But the consequences are for the descent. The blessings are to the ascent. And everyone knows that when there is a reward waiting for us, it has a motivation. I always think that Chloe, my dog, is coming for me. But I represent a blessing to her. I look like a big giant bone in her eyes. And the reason that I look like that is because I give her a little one when she makes efforts of ascent, pleasing to me, when she's going outside and not going inside, when she obeys the things that I've asked of her, then she gets a little, what you would call a blessing. And it's funny, she's wired for it. She's not wired for the other thing. That can happen. 
She's wired for the blessing, but she understands the consequence. One of the things, if you've seen her, that she will do is she just goes crazy with love for people coming in the house. And she has this particular song that she sings to people, and she runs up and down, and she grabs things, and she wants to give people everything that she can find. But if there's stuff going on in the house, like a piano lesson, it's rather disrespectful. <laughs> so here's what we discovered. We used this trick on the cat. Cats are different. They don't like water. And so we have this little squirt gun. And so if Maui the cat makes a descent into the abyss of offense, then we've learned that he knows well that he will get a squirt of water and that tames him immediately he becomes a purring well he runs but but he runs to realize what he had done now chloe all she has to do now is see it because she saw what happened to maui and she's experienced it a couple times with herself so today she had this maui's play mouse in her mouth and only the tail was hanging out and she started going through her disruptive kind of i've got to love everybody right now I said, no, no, you don't, and you can't right now. And I just picked it up and looked at her, and she just dropped the mouth, uh, dropped the mouse, her mouth agape. That was as easy as it was. A good girl. Now here's your bone. So the illustration may be elementary, maybe not apropos, but the point that I'm making is that even with God, He knows that we are easily able to be motivated out of where we once had found ourselves in trouble. And yet it takes the decision that you will, in that motivation, make the decision to take the footsteps necessary to God, closer to God. Remember that in the previous psalm we saw that the tendency of man is to step back. And then the tendency in the stepping back is to renounce faith or what you once believed about God. That's called, in the official words of theology, apostasy, when you all of a sudden renunciate your faith. Say, you know what, I was wrong about God, and he isn't what I thought he was, and he isn't what I said, isn't what I sang about, and so I just want nothing to do with God. Well, God's never changed. We're the ones that change. So this is a changing psalm that's also historically grounded in both thanksgiving and also an epilogue, a closing statement of a focus. So let's take a look at some of these verses and find our encouragement in them. God to the rescue. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. You're a good, good father. That's one of the songs we sang tonight. It's a really simple song, but it's a very good song sung, sung to a good, good father, a good God. For his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And then in verse 3, it says, Whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. So we know what that means. There was a regathering of Israel 
when they had been moved into captivity, after 70 years, they were able to come back to Jerusalem. Then there was a scattering of Israel in the time, basically, of the formation of the church, which would be scattered, but there would be a decimation of Israel itself in A.D. 70, and they would be scattered once again to the four corners of the earth. And then in May 14, 1948, they would be summoned back from the four corners of the earth and to occupy their homeland. Once again, that's history, but it's also a reality of God's faithfulness. They wouldn't have been able to presume, perhaps in Daniel's time, what it all meant, because Daniel had to, with the others, let time play out with what was required, 70 years of captivity. But Daniel did his part, maintaining his faithfulness to God with the others that we've talked about, and the others that would come from that captivity, Ezra, Nehemiah. They took their cues from Daniel. They were basically contemporaries one closer than the other. But contemporaries mean that they were experiencing the same, if you would, effect of trouble upon themselves, and yet they remained diligent in the place that they would rather have not been to make a spiritual ascent above what would have been a very decadent and immoral society, highly influencing Nebuchadnezzar in his thoughts about God. And Nebuchadnezzar wrestled with spirituality. He was closer than those who akin to him would fail, and ultimately they would be brought into subjection. And we know who comes on the scene. But that being said is that this is pointing to a joyful reunion. And this is actually relating to, from this psalmist's perspective, the work of God not yet fully seeing what now we see from 1948 and prolifically the growth and influence of Israel. And it is awesome. It is amazing. Their contribution being such a small nation and yet powerful in so many of what we would call the sciences and disciplines, medicines, they, they have been amazing in every facet of contributing to the betterment of the world. And of course, one of the things that we pray for and cheer on is the revelation of Jesus, whom he has revealed himself to them, but that their eyes would be open and their ears would be open and their hearts would be open to recognize Jesus as their Messiah, no longer waiting for Messiah, he came, but to recognize though the nation missed him, this generation will not miss him. And so part of that has come by those who, when we talk about a reunion, it's those who from a nation like ours who love the Lord and who love the Jewish people and who do so obediently to the scriptures, they are dumbfounded when they are being treated with such what? Grace and mercy. Some don't, but Americans, in particular Christian Americans, who simply want to love on them and share in a manner that reflects the heart of God, not judging them, but loving them for who they are, it does a conversion of their soul because they've never experienced. It's always been, what do we get out of this? What can you do for us? 
And so the love of Christ given to them by those who from the Christian community go over there with no other agenda but to simply show them in demonstration, not necessarily evangelism, but in demonstration, we love you guys. God's done awesome things for you. And the inquiry then, because I don't know if you knew this, but they have to be very careful about their inquiries or entertaining of a Christian message because there isn't proselytizing that's allowed there. Therefore, as I've been told and as we saw, they have to ask you. Then that's not proselytizing. You have to be granted a permission of their curiosity as to this reunion. See, they see it as a curious thing. Okay, you're tourists, but there's something different about you and why you're here, and we need to know what it is. And that opens the door for what then we would say and what even this psalm alludes to as a grand reunion, uniting the children of the church, the Lord's bride, with the apple of God's eye, which is the wife of Jehovah. That's what they were known as. And there is a reunion that takes place, this knitting together of, of basically the love of God. So pretty amazing, because God's basically saying, I'm going to break down all of these walls. I'm going to break down everyone and bring them into one nation, one group, one body. And so that's what one through three suggests, this joyful reunion, this return ultimately that has historically happened. And guess what? If it happened historically in 1948 and nothing's changed that, do you think that the scriptures for you can be an anchor in what you may say are tumultuous times, and it is to anchor you? We get to live in the confidence that what God says he did and he performed, and he'll perform it for us as well. In verse 4 and through 9, we'll read that and discuss what that means as well. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses, and he led them forth by the right way. that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. If some of you have been attending the John study, you know, we had talked about hunger and thirst and the feeding of the 5,000. And we had talked about that for a majority of the multitude, it was simply for the satisfaction of their temporal hunger. We linked that back to what Israel had challenges with, which was a hunger that was motivated by a mixed company among them. We talked to that as being a secular influence and how the secular influence can change our appetite as well, turning us from the things of God that we found delightful and satisfying and fulfilling 
and to the things that lead to emptiness and a greater hunger. So we looked at that as a parallel. And, you know, just citing an example, and I'm not saying it's the best one, but it's a practical one. As a young kid, went down the block to a friend's house, and mothers, much like they are today, except they, they really did wear the aprons and the little bonnets. They totally looked like mothers from the 50s. They were very domestically looking. And so this mother of one of my friends came out, and there was a gleam that shined off of this tray as it pierced between the different stackings of cookies that were on it. And there must have been at least 12 of us as kind of a gang of friends from different quadrants of the block. And when we smelled it and when we saw it, we went into a feeding frenzy. And I was a part of that. I was not respectful. I didn't care. All I wanted to do was get there before everybody else. And I think that I did. In fact, I think I caused the tragedy that happened. I hit that tray so hard and grabbing for the cookies, it just went spinning up like a saucer and scattered those cookies all over the yard. And the one that I thought that I had in my grips was taken by one of my friends. And the mother, just like a classic 50s mother, was like, you know, and there was nothing she could do. The feeding frenzy had begun. And so we're all falling on the lawn. We're pushing each other out of the way. We're slugging each other to get to these cookies that had been freshly baked. There were, as I recall, two trash cans that also followed suit. Once I had hit that tray, I backed into a trash can. And those were the steel ones that rolled really nicely. They didn't collapse like the rubber ones did. These were steamrollers. A couple of my friends were rolled over by them because I think I was also the one that stood on top of a trash can to get to those cookies. So finally, when I saw one on the ground, I went for it, grabbed it, ate it, and I was consuming like the rest of them, just stuffing in my mouth. Get to another cookie, began to stuff it in my mouth, and something was different about it. It was not the cookie that I'd just eaten. And I never knew how much a little doggy dooley could look like a cookie <laughs> just because it got steamrolled. And as soon as I did it, my countenance changed. And the whole thought of eating another cookie vanished. The problem was is that my friends saw what had happened, and they smelled me for what had happened. And I was completely humiliated. Nothing mattered except to run to my mom and to ask for help, because I thought I was going to die. And by the time she got through with me, I really did think that <laughs> I was going to die. I got the bar of soap. I got a saltwater rinse. I got a lecture about how to be respectful when mothers come out to get their cookie, because I, I think that that woman, who was a friend of my mom's, called in advance, Little Richie did this. <laughs> it was a Little Richie speech again. And then I think it was a solution of hydrogen peroxide, too, that polished it all up. And then, though, the coup de grace was to go to the dispensary and to get a tetanus shot. And back then, they used elephant darts on 
experimental uh, gluteus maximuses like I had. I share that with you, and the, the idea is that something can be, honestly, from a distance, so attractive and so wholesome. The problem is, is when you're in the mix, it can affect ultimately the decision you make about how to, hmm, can I? Should I? And if so, how is it that it may be mine from God and for my benefit? It didn't have to be that other type of cookie. It would have been fine had it been what she offered. But I went into a frenzy, provoking others to go into a frenzy. And so simply the lesson right now, and especially where these people, it says, desolate on the way, no city to dwell in, hungry and thirsty, what was the Lord doing? He was showing them that he was the means to their satisfaction and that he would be willing to wait them out in order to bless them as they cried out. That's the idea and the principle right now, that God has no problem putting us into a position in which he's the only thing that we need and the only one who can deliver upon his word. And so what happens is in the impatience of the wait, we upset things and we then can find ourselves literally getting what we deserve when God had no intentions of serving that to us. We, we grabbed for it. We're the ones that rolled it over. We're the ones that created something that looked similar to but did not have the merit that God desired. So again, when we see that in this the psalmist moves to give credit to the Lord, thanks to God. And, you know, I learned a valuable lesson there, too. You know, I did. I had a mother that, in spite of what I did, loved me. And that would not have been an easy thing to love coming into the door. It was a full mouth of what I shouldn't have put in my mouth. But it says that he, verse 9, satisfies the longing of the soul. He fills the hungry soul with goodness. So, my goodness, why do we want to fill ourselves with anything less than what God has purposed for us? Verses 10 through 16, those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down. And there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. That's what it says he's doing. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Verse 15, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. It's a redundant phrase. Instead of complaining, which we looked at also in the previous psalm, but also we saw evident in terms of the Gospel of John, we need to give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron into it. means we're out of jail. We have release. It's a Galatians in essence, forementioned. Galatians is about liberty and freedom in the Lord. And so 
it's very interesting how much of what even the psalmist pens, the spirit inspired to be reiterated in doctrine. And that's why for even us now, one of the things that is a cultural resentment, both of compliance but of resentment, is what law is imposing or ordinances or guidelines are imposing because every one of us know that deep inside we want to be free. We need to be free. And so that's still God's heart is that whatever circumstance situation we're in, we never lose sight that there is something he's done within us because he's released us from, if you would, the wayward soul to set us on the right course and to give us freedom. And we don't want to go back there. And all it takes is an incident to remind us we do not want to go back there. We've been set free. We're on a course to heaven. And we want to free by the Spirit, through the word of truth, as many as we have influence on. But our influence isn't necessarily getting in their face. It's them seeing our face, our joy, the history of what they know or have heard of the times when we were in our desert wanderings and that we changed course, we decided to follow the Lord and to cry out to the Lord. Prisoners released may be a good particular title for 10 through 16. The other may be the wanderers retrieved. That might be as well a good title for 4 through 9. But in 17 through 22, it moves into as well another aspect. And I'm sure you can see even by these little titles that it really pictures the Lord Jesus, what Isaiah told us he would be when God would bring to the world the light of the world. And he entered into ministry, and you know that what he said in Nazareth, one of his first sermons with absolutely no shame about reciting Isaiah. He was declaring himself to be that which Isaiah declared God would be revealed as, one that would touch those with infirmities and heal them, set them free, open their eyes, cleanse their skin, forgive them of sin. And so in 17 through 22, fools, because of tr their transgression and because of their iniquities, they were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Verse 19, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and notice this, and he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. And notice that, that's, that's a plural pronoun, from their destructions. It can be both personal and plural. Their destructions. In other words, basically what they brought on themselves. It says that he delivered them from what they brought upon themselves. And that's why one of the things that we celebrate is, is the faithfulness of God and the things that we do bring upon ourselves. But his intention isn't to, you know, keep us there. It's to bring us out of there. We have a message of hope. It's what makes us compassionate for those who may be in the throes of destruction brought upon by themselves. And we then, because of knowing how God freed us, have a heart of compassion.
that what he did for us, he can do for them. What he did once for us, he will do again for us after the last mess up. In advance of the next mess up, he will do for us his intentions of bringing us from destruction that we brought upon ourselves. And that is an awesome God. And I bet most of us wouldn't pass the God test on that one. Most of us can find it very easy to fold our arms and say, you deserve everything that you got. And God would say, well, if that's true, Richie, then you likewise would deserve everything that you didn't get. So how does that translate? And that's one of the reasons why we reflect with compassion on those who are not seeing the faithfulness of God. And the faithfulness of God is seen not by them being judged, but by being forgiven. And if we cannot forgive, and I'm not saying we won't be tested in what that means, depending on the offense, there are sore tests for that. But that is the means by which God liberates and opens up the prison doors. If not, we're doing just, in one sense, a we're putting them back into jail. And uh, the Lord is capable of correction, but he wants to use us to minister grace and mercy and to realize that he has been faithful to us more than we possibly could deserve. Prisoners released, the sick restored, in essence it sums up. And oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord, to the Lord. So when you look at 17 with the emphasis again even on affliction and the soul abhorring all manner of food, meaning they're sick to death. They have no appetite for what they need. And we need to know that there is a hunger that can be satisfied by what God will provide. 23 through 32 Closing on 22, I need to do that. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. And the implication on that is that a sacrifice means that it may be not what you feel like doing or want to do, but you can do it if it's a sacrifice. If it costs you something, which may be pride, emotion, humility, humiliation, then the word to us is that that is the right thing to do, sacrifice. The sacrifice of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. When there's the sacrifice doing what it is you feel you can't do or don't want to do, but it's rendered to the Lord in an act of obedience, then what follows is the declaring of his works with rejoicing. The Lord changes the heart. When we change our mind about the circumstance, about the person, when we extend ourselves, then he reciprocates. And what do we do? We then, became, we then become those who de declare his works with rejoicing. Verses 23 through 32. Those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. Those are our fishermen in the church. You know, we have wonderful fishermen in the church. I mean, we have really some wonderful fishermen in the church. And this to me speaks of them because for them that is a device. It's not just a fishing time. 
It's actually time with the Lord in which they see a reward coming from the deep to them, and they reward people in special ways in what the Lord has given to them. I've heard their stories. It's amazing. They pray in advance. Yes, oh Lord, you know, if I could just be blessed to get something on my line today, this is what I'd like to do with it. And sure enough, they have a story of that's what they got because they went out on a devotional time with the Lord and they were able to acknowledge that as those who go to the sea in ships and who did business on great waters, they see the works and his wonders in the deep. And no doubt, they probably have seen him walking on the waters for them in times of peril when the wind blew contrary to them and they were out farther than they thought, and their motor isn't working, and their oar did get broken, because the guy they invited in the boat to minister truth sat on it, as opposed to utilized it. The Lord, his wonders in the deep. It would be considered a storm-tossed rescue in terms of what it means right now. His wonders in the deep, for he commands and raises the stormy winds, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. And they reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Oh, then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness, for his wonderful works to the children of Israel, children of men. So you know that that sounds just like the gospel of John, doesn't it? The feeding of the 5,000, Jesus goes up on the mount to pray. He commands his disciples to go into the boat. They get about midway through and a storm comes up. And it frightened them, and Jesus comes out and assured them. And then it says the boat was on the other side. In essence, if you go back from where we are, chapter 6, you'll see it's a brief account, not as long as, I believe, Matthew, but it's, it's a wonderful account. And it almost seems to be prophetically pictured right here. Because it is about teaching those disciples who are following the Lord how to trust him in the storms and to know that he's there as a rescue. The Lord doesn't recuse himself because of being God and, oh, that would be so imposing. He rescues, though, who actually recuse themselves from acknowledging God, perhaps at a moment more needful than the time that they cried out. You've done that before. You've been just a little bit apprehensive about crying out to God, thinking that, okay, well, it's going to, I've got a plan. I've got, it's going to work out. I've got a plan. And the plan doesn't work out. It seemingly is frustrated. But God does not recuse himself, meaning that because we didn't call upon him sooner or because of who he is as God, imposing himself on us, he comes to our rescue. But boy, the invitation for the rescue, he attends like a father or like a mother, caring, on the run, ready to grab you. And that's really what we see, how Jesus behaved 
towards his disciples. We know that it was sovereignly appointed for them, but they didn't know it. And that's what we have to remember is that there's a sovereignty of God in which there's appointments he's made for us. And we're to point to him as we enter into them. Sorrow, it happens. Loss, it's a fact. But there's glory beyond it. There's glory beyond it. There has to be. He moves us from glory to greater glory. He moves us from faith to faith. And it is an expression of faith that requires from us a work of faith. James teaches us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So our faith will be tested. Our temperament will be tried. And in verse 33, through the close, it says that in God's sovereignty, and even in what we would call the rebellious and lawless nature of man, there is an adjudicator, there is a lawman who will settle these events inevitably and put to shame those who are behaving contrary to his will. 33 begins, he turns rivers into wilderness and the water springs into dry ground, a fruitful land into barrenness and the wickedness of those who dwell in it. It very likely is not climate change. It's the seasons that God has appointed and he is also able to, in those seasons that he has appointed, dial them into whatever he wants to dial them into. Does it have to do with a world that has rejected him? Could. We know that he reigns upon the just and the unjust, and it is possible that in that reigning, there could be a time of barrenness. But remember this, that even in Egypt, which was a picture of God doing to one nation because they rebelled against him and they were hard on his people, he protected his people right in the next neighborhood. And God can do that. Some would say, well, what about these neighborhoods that have burned down? God can protect entire neighborhoods or one home within a neighborhood. And God can still rebuild from the ashes of a home a life of the individuals that he saved from that home. We're not spared from difficulties or consequences that we didn't initiate. But what we are shown is that God will be faithful in another season of mercy, he will be faithful. None of us would want what many in the valley have had to go through. None of us wanted to be a part of the insecurities of job loss or of even church anemia. None of us want to be a part of that. But in order to understand God better, we must not come apart. We must not separate ourselves from God nor from what we know is true about God. He's going to see us through. And people need to see people that have a trusting confidence in the Lord. The political system is a mess. But God has allowed government to prevail. But God has also never said that he no longer governs governments. He will depose one and he'll raise up another. He will cause armies that are oppressive to invade those who were more oppressive. 
he will correct. He'll make an allowance on the scene of humanity. But he's God. And what we know is that as a nation, we need to be those who are able to say, it's time to turn back to God. It's time to make the important truths of God's word evident to those who we are electing that are making vile and lawless choices. And they are. They're supposed to be representing God. It's his institution. But they're representing really wickedness among the nations, among a minority who do not believe in God. And when you start moving into acceptation of agnostics and atheists, you are bound to get a law that will only incite evil and allow for it to take place. Wickedness of those who dwell in it. 35, he turns a wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs. There he makes the hungry dwell. He can turn that one event around to bring about an altogether new beginning. That's what he can do. There he makes the hungry dwell, that they may establish a city for a dwelling place, and sow fields and plants and vineyards, that they may yield a fruitful harvest. He also blesses them, and they multiply greatly, and he does not let their cattle decrease. David would see this in the time of his reign, how God protected him. But he was a warrior king, and he needed to fight for God. We are a bride of the Lord's, but we are also warriors for God as well. It is both strength, and it is also both highly sensitive spiritually to what God is requiring of us. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, affliction, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way. Yet he sets the poor on high, far from affliction, and makes their families like a flock. The righteous see it and rejoice, and all iniquity stops its mouth. It basically, he doesn't need to say shut up. What he's done shuts them up. a common vernacular to basically assert yourself over another person and what they're saying. And we've all said it. I think we've all said it, or some versions of it. God says the events that he will bring about will do so to those who have been iniquitous. Verse 43 concludes the epilogue. Whoever is wise will observe these things and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. What must you do to understand the loving kindness of the Lord? You must review his faithfulness throughout all generations. That's it. The loving kindness of the Lord is understood when you evaluate properly his faithfulness throughout all generations. Some generations have had it much harder than other generations. And I would say we have not been a generation that has had it the hardest. There are others who have had it much harder, but have also been, in my opinion, one of the most highly influential as far as the strength and message of God's word. 
but we can be strong. And God is not looking at us like little wimps. We are just in an incredible age of understanding God better than probably many generations. But we want to be those who are contributors to what, as well as we move through even the Gospel of John, the intention of the Lord to bring the message of hope in what we would say are the latter days 